the law of God, as we have been learning about in the past few weeks, refers to the absolute standards of God. An absolute God, a holy God, a righteous God has to speak in absolute terms. He can't do anything less. He can't do anything else. So he speaks in absolute terms. He says, be holy because I'm holy. Be perfect because I am perfect. And so he speaks in absolute terms. And the law of God, the commands of God, the ordinances that he has given us, the decrees of God, are absolute standards. But the law of God, that phrase, is also a reference to the general principles and directives for daily living. You know, as we live it out. So there may not even be a specific command as such that we can point to, but the general statement, the law of God, his word to us, communicates and shows us how we have to live our lives. So the, that's why the word says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And when we use the phrase the law of God, we're referring to the power of God, the strength of God, the work of God in us. That we're saying the law of God is doing something in us. The law of God is revealing our sin. That's not even because there's a specific verse that, for example, do not covet. And I say, oh, I was coveting. Oh, I see it in the Bible. It may not even be that specific a verse. But the law of God, the word of God, his communication to us is revealing our hearts. It starts to make our sin visible. Right? So the law of God is doing all of these things in us. But last week, as we considered that we have been delivered from the obligation or the burden of the law, we are not saved by keeping the law. So we're not saying, oh, I've got to keep the law, otherwise I'm not going to heaven. That's not the point of the law of God. But as we saw that and understood that, we saw that there are two extremes, two extreme ways of thinking that we must avoid. And one of those extremes is to think that real Christians, good Christians, holy Christians will not sin. Right? That's an extreme. We say, oh, you know, look at me. I'm doing well. That's what the Pharisees said. They said, you know, if you're truly a follower of God, if you're truly walking in God's ways, then you won't sin. And we look or we elevate ourselves in that way. So we have this, we, quit, we can have this extreme mindset that real Christians will not sin. But on the other side, when we look at those verses that we read, and we say, oh, you know, I struggle with sin, and uh, the, the good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil that is in me, I do. I, I, you know, who will deliver me? And you know, we read all those verses, and we interpret them. We go to the other extreme and say, Real Christians will always sin. Meaning what? There's going to be some area in my life that I'm not going to have victory over. This is going to be a sin in my area, in my life, an area in, of my life that I just won't have any victory over. And we can go into that extreme, right? We can be self-righteous or say that we do not sin, and we, or we can say, well, I'm always going to sin. And neither extreme is what the Lord is asking us to do. Because when we go into this extreme of saying, well, you know, I can't help it, we will excuse our sin, we will overlook it, we will justify it, we will explain it away, instead of saying, Christ died for all of these sins. Christ gave me victory over all of these sins. If, even if this sin has been besetting me my whole life, 
even if it has been affecting me in ways that I, I just don't even see how I can break free, Christ still is victorious over that sin, and I need to come to him. And I need to look to him. Which means that as we realize that we can, or we may, or we will sin, we also realize we're not under the control, the dominion, the bondage, the slavery of sin. We've been set free from that. So we're not on this extreme saying, I'm never going to sin. And we're not on this extreme saying, well, I'm always going to sin. But rather we say, when I sin, when I sin, I know that I can have redemption in Christ. I can return to him. I know that he is faithful. I know that he is good and that he can give me the victory over this besetting sin, over this entangling sin, because Jesus has already won the victory. So when we have that realization of our freedom, you know, remember what we read last, last week from Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, live, walk, move, have your being in that freedom. Understanding that freedom. So when we have that realization of our freedom in Christ, then in Romans 8, we consider what it means to live in that freedom and what it means to live according to the Spirit, according to the Holy Spirit. So let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8 begins with such a glorious statement that we must make sure we don't miss it or minimize it. What does it say? Therefore, and what are, the, what are those truths that have led to this therefore? Since we're no longer under the law, since we have been set free, since Christ has done it all, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not that there is only some condemnation. It's not that we are free from condemnation for some period of time. It's not that we are free from condemnation for some types of sin. No. There is no condemnation for any sin for all time. We are not judged and found guilty of our sins. We are forgiven and redeemed from our sins. That's, what a, what a glorious privilege. What a joy. What an assurance. I mean, that, this is the place where you go, hallelujah. Right? Yeah, you can, you know. I mean, praise the Lord. We, we, we just read these verses and we don't realize what a significant statement the Bible is making. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What have you felt condemned about? What have you felt guilty about? What have you said, oh, even as I was saying, even you know, through what we were talking about last week, where you say, oh, I just don't think I can get victory. And we condemn ourselves. But the Bible says that God himself is saying to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a joy. What a joy. A glorious reality, but one that is available for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't set ourselves free. We can't escape the legal consequence of sin through pleading our own cause. We can't get up you know, in the court of the Lord and say, let me, let me tell you why my sin was not so bad. We can't justify ourselves. We can't pay the penalty for our sin. You know, when, when the when the sin is clear, and the penalty of that sin is also very clear, we, we, we have no way of paying for it. We can't atone for our sins. So when we receive the gift of God, when we accept Jesus, when we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, when we are in Christ Jesus, we enjoy a condemnation-free life. Not otherwise. Not otherwise. When we are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Now, I started out by saying that we're no longer enslaved to sin, but we do sin. And if we have been set free, and we're no longer condemned or judged for our sin, how do we understand the fact that we continue to sin? Why do we, you know, I mean, how, how should we... We, we know that we continue to sin. That there's no doubt that we continue to sin. So what should we think of that? I mean, how should we come to it? How should we consider the impact of that continuing sin? Well, as a child of God, our sin 
the sin that we continue to do, the sin that we so easily give into. Our sin is not about breaking a rule and about the legal consequence of transgressing a command of God. It's not about that. Our sin now is about breaking a relationship. It's not about breaking the rule. And if you think of the law of God, and if you think of our relationship with God in terms of rules and regulations and laws and commands, then you'll say, I kept this law, I didn't keep that one, I'm going to, keep it, I'm going to do it better next time. Or I kept you know, five of them, I didn't keep one, hey, that's better than, you know, than most people, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, you will look at the rules, but when you think of the relationship, then you're saying, Lord God, it's not about whether I broke a rule. It's not about whether there was this, this you know, check mark, you know, four checks and one, you know, not, you know, it's not that way. It's, I am breaking relationship with you. You know, it's, it's not, it's notable that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, it reminds us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The first statement that is made there, or that statement that is made there, is not, you know, don't disobey the Holy Spirit. The obedience of, before God is there in the Bible, and clearly, you know, but it's very interesting, it's notable that that verse says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Do, do you get into a court of law? I mean, maybe you've got a traffic ticket at some point and had to appear in a court of law, and you stand before the judge, and the judge is trying to pass sentence, you know, this thing, that thing, whatever else. You don't talk about grieving the judge. You don't say, you know, oh, I'm so sorry, I've grieved you. You say, well, I broke the rule, you know, I'll do better next time. Okay, fine, you know. But when we are in a relationship, then our focus is not on the rule, it's on that relationship to say, oh God, I've grieved you. I've saddened you. I've caused your heart to break because of what I've done. That's the focus. That's the emphasis. And so when our sin affects the relationship we have, with our loving heavenly Father, with our Savior and our Comforter, when our sin distances us from God, when a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin, when our sin distances us, when we step away, when we run from God because of what we are doing, we grieve the Lord and we hurt the relationship we have with Him, but let me remind you of this that God is bigger than our sin. God is not overwhelmed by our sin. It's not that we break the relationship, we do these things, we sadden him, and we say, oh, there I go again. No. We say, oh God, I thank you that you're bigger than this sin. That you died for this sin, that you paid the price for this sin, and so I run back to you. I run back to you. I come to you because I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And so in that court of law, even though I'm doing something that legally should have a consequence, guess what? My advocate is so good, so good, that he pleads my case, and he brings me back, and he takes care of all the legal stuff, and I just get a letter in the mail that says, your ticket has been taken care of, right? 
I, I'm speaking from experience. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, it's been taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. And what do I have to look forward to in return? I, instead, I can say, oh, God, thank you for bringing me back in relationship with you. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that even though I come to you seven times and say, forgive me, you forgive me all seven times, and then 70 times seven, and you keep on forgiving me. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's what's our impact of our continuing sin. That we would see what it's doing to the Lord. Almighty, all-powerful God, grieved, saddened by my sin. Do I see that? Do I recognize that? Do I acknowledge that? So, when we as children of God want to continually please our Father, when we want to love our Father, when we want to remain in an unbroken, close and intimate relationship with Him, when we want to live, as verse 4, what we read, points out, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not because it's a law, oh, I better live according to the Spirit, but because we love Him. And we say, oh God, I want to remain in this relationship with you. So that's what motivates us. But how do we do it? How do we remain? How do we live according to the Spirit? Well, look at verse 5 again. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What does it mean to set our minds on something? There's a very close connection between thinking and living. Right? You just you can't get away from it. How you think is, what, is how you're living. Setting our minds on something is a resolute, determined, focused attention on something specific. This. It, it, everything is now focused on that. You're setting your mind on that. It could be for a period of time. It could be for a long you know, stretch. It could be for just a short period, whatever it may be. It may be for just to complete a task in a certain way. But you set your mind. You give it all your attention. And your actions, what you do, and your imagination, what you think you will do, is all captured, they're all captured by whatever you set your mind on. Everything is now focused on this. And when do you, by the way, when do you get overwhelmed? When you try to set your mind on too many things. Because we're incapable of really setting our minds with that kind of focused attention on many different things, right? Even as we're preparing for one thing or we're looking at one thing and something else happens, something comes along, what happens? We start to get stressed. We start to go into all sorts of, you know, things affect us. Why? Because it is very tough for us to be able to set our minds on multiple things. 
So when we set our minds on something, our actions, our thoughts, our words, everything, it preoccupies us. It shapes our character and our lifestyle. Whatever you set your mind on starts to shape your character and your lifestyle. Look at what you're doing on, a, on a, any given day. Look at how you spend your leisure time. Look at what you do when you interact with people or where you go or what, you, what motivates you. And you will start to see what is it that I'm really setting my mind on. Right? I mean, if you do something occasionally, you go apple picking, you go to the lake, you know, I, that's, it may not be what you set your mind on. Right? You just sort of go do it, you enjoy it, you have fun, it's done. But there are other things, and you know for your life, what is it that I set my mind on? What is it that captures me? What shapes my life? And what shapes our life, what shapes our lives, doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with how we think. It's there. It's not, I'm at work, I'm doing this thing, you know, that's what's shaping my life. I'm going to play a sport, that's what's shaping my life. It's how you're thinking. It's what you're thinking that's shaping your life. And so that's why the Bible is saying these things. There's so much to say about the mind and our thoughts and so on. So what does it mean that those who live according to their flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires? This is what the Bible describes as being carnally minded. Carnal is just a word to say flesh. You know, it's focused on the flesh. You may even have heard the phrase, a carnal Christian, you know. Sort of an oxymoron, but you know, you, you, we use that phrase. We say a carnal Christian, and what we are saying is that although we are saved, although we have been set free, although we have received the truths of God by the Spirit of God, at least occasionally, or maybe even habitually, we desire, we pursue pleasure, power, position, and the provisions of the flesh. We spend our time and resources trying to figure out how we can achieve and then hold on to those things. That becomes the focus. Now, again, hear me, I'm not talking about the fact that you shouldn't, I'm not saying you shouldn't never do anything pleasurable. You should never be in a position of power or authority. You should never have any kind of ambitions or you know, that you, you're acquiring material things and you're doing something with By all means, be led of the Lord to do all of that. But when that becomes the primary focus, when that's what you're setting your mind on, when that's what's shaping your character and your lifestyle, then you've got to say, what am I setting my desires on? So when we set our minds on what the flesh desires, or to put it differently, when we set our minds on something other than what the Spirit desires, we are deliberately pursuing the things of the flesh. Right? We, we, we deliberately go after that. It's enticing. The things of the flesh have, have some pleasure to them, have some value to them. When you're doing them, it's, it's enjoyable. Right? Now, it may have a consequence later, but people don't pursue it because it's not pleasurable, because it's not getting them something. They per we pursue these things because it does something. The question is, where is that leading? 
Now, and so there are these actions or these desires of the flesh that are deliberate, but I want to also tell you that the, when, we, when we don't remember what Jesus has done for us, when we don't appropriate the truth of the word of God, and we start, into, we start to get into worry and anxiety, panic attacks, whatever it may be, about our circumstances, ourselves, other people, or we become guilt-ridden about our own sin, we're not looking at Jesus, we're looking at all of these circumstances, and we may have a good intention to set things right or to right our own wrongs and so on. But instead of relying and depending on Jesus, we're actually trying to save others and ourselves by our own efforts. We are saying, I have set my mind on finding the way out of this predicament by my own effort. And that's also fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Even though it seems good, I'm doing my best to get victory over this sin. I'm doing my best to deal properly with this person. But you're really fulfilling a desire of your flesh because you're not depending on the Lord Jesus. You're not looking to him. So we can willfully pursue an obvious act of the flesh or desire of the flesh, even as we were reminded last week, and I'll get to another portion today. But we can also, in a very subtle way, think we're doing the right thing, but still be trying to fulfill the desires of our flesh. So in all these ways, in all of this stuff, we have to come to the Lord and say, Lord God, help me not to set my mind on the things of the flesh. Because here, as we're reading this portion, what is the result of setting our minds on the flesh? Uh, the warnings in verses 7 through 8 are quite stark. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Not just indifferent to God, hostile to God. The mind that is governed by the flesh does not submit to God's law. Nor can it do so. It's not, you know, yeah, somewhat submissive. If you're pursuing the things of the flesh, you cannot even submit to God's law. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Very, I mean, these are very stark statements, very hard statements. We have to take them seriously. So how do we live according to the Spirit? We do not set our minds on what the flesh desires but we do set our minds on what the Spirit desires. What does the Spirit desire? What does the Holy Spirit desire? At its most basic level, the Holy Spirit desires that we love and worship God, that we glorify Him, that we obey Him, because He has loved us, adopted us, and brought us to Himself. Chief end of man is to glorify God, to live for Him. The basic desire of the Holy Spirit is that we would be brought to God, that we would be in union with God, that we would know Christ, and we would know Him. You know, we would know Him intimately. That's the most basic desire. So, if we are pursuing that, if that's what's filling our minds, if that's what we're setting our minds on, 
we're already moving in that direction of knowing what is the Spirit's desire. Now in Colossians chapter 3, a passage that's very similar to what we read last week in Galatians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3 provides some more insights into what it means to set our minds on what the Spirit desires. So go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And read, as you're reading these verses, as I'm reading them out loud, think of these truths that we've just talked about. Setting our minds, what does it mean, not on the flesh, or what the flesh desires, but on what the Spirit desires. How does that you know, affect our thinking? So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Since then, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You, know, you, need, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now notice, notice the communal body of Christ's nature, of our identity. We're not defined by our ethnicity or our culture. Our identity is in Christ. And how we are to live, we don't live for ourselves, our flesh. We live for others. Notice that that's what this passage is talking about as we continue to read. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you have any doubt as to what the Spirit desires, what you need to 
set your minds on. Just read these scriptures. They're very clear. Hey, don't do this, do this. Don't set your mind on this, set your mind on this. They explicitly spell it out. Which means that as we listen to all of this and we consider the word of God and we say, Lord God, how do I respond? How do I apply? What do I do? We respond and we apply by setting our minds on things above. We don't set our minds on the desires of the flesh. We set our minds on the desires of the spirit. Now, the Declaration of Independence of the American Colonies, which what was later to become the United States of America, declares our unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I should have said the pursuit of holiness, but you know, Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in America and really the rest of the world, we have interpreted the pursuit of happiness as our individualistic peace and quiet of the soul, the strength and pleasure of the body, and the fulfillment and entitlement of whatever we desire. We have interpreted it as setting our minds on the things that the flesh desires. We said, that's what happiness will be. That's what I need to pursue. But what is clear, even in the Declaration of Independence, because the next statement, you read the next statement, it talks about, therefore, the, we set up this government. The, even in the Declaration of Independence, and certainly in what the Bible teaches us, there is that happiness, that the happiness that we should live for is not about my personal well-being, but rather about our collective well-being. The nation's founders felt that a representative republic, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, would work towards the happiness of all its citizens. It wasn't saying we'll set this up so that each one of you can go be happy in whatever you want to do. It was saying we'll set this up so that we together can pursue happiness. And we can do something that will benefit the other person. That's what this was about. Or at least that was the intent that would seem to be implied and in the writings from the time, 1776 and so on, you read some of those things, they talk about it in these terms, that there is this collective impact. The Bible teaches us that all who will respond to Christ's invitation to be found in him will form the body of Christ for the good of all people. When we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, when we bear with each other and forgive one another, when we put on love that covers over a multitude of sins, when we are bound together by that love of God in perfect unity, we will experience the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts because of, as members of one body, we are called to peace. That's why... As Romans chapter 8, verse 6 makes clear, even though the mind governed by the flesh is death, the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. You want to pursue happiness individually and collectively? Have the mind of Christ. 
pursue the mind of the spirit, desire the mind and the things of the spirit. Every day, in every way, we're asking the Holy Spirit for guidance and strength to set our minds on things above, to set our minds on what the Spirit desires, to help us to live according to the Spirit. In the recent past, you know, just in conversations, there have been some conversations where we've been talking about the sharpness and clarity of our thinking the focus of, you know, and the attention that we would have on anything that we're doing even. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. You may not have slept well and you may be going through something else and something's happening to you physically and so on. But I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Let's set our minds on what the Spirit desires. And there will be greater clarity of mind. There'll be greater focus. There'll be greater ability to think right and think straight because the Holy Spirit will be in us and allowing the mind of Christ to be manifest through us. So as we look at all of this, as we think about what it means to renew our minds, you know, that's what the Bible calls us to, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The challenge and the call to us this morning is that we would set our lives, set our minds right by desiring what the Holy Spirit desires. Holy, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are in our midst and you are the one that has been speaking to us. And we pray, Father, that this word will ring in our ears, it will continue to lead and guide and direct our thinking. And most importantly, Lord, it will cause us to be doers of the word, to be applying this word, to take action by saying, Lord God, I have been setting my mind on all sorts of different things. Help me to set my mind on you, on things above, on what it means to be found in Christ Jesus. Help me to set my mind on loving and forgiving one another. Help me to set my mind on serving and being kind and compassionate to others. Help me to set my mind on, Lord, seeking the common good. Help me to set my mind on Lord, happiness and holiness being true for my entire family, my church family, my immediate family, Lord, everyone that I come into contact with. And Father, if I'm coming into contact with a person who does not know you, Lord, more than anything else, help me to share with them how they can come to know you and that they can also set their minds on what the Spirit desires. Because Lord, the alternative, if we are setting our minds on the flesh, the alternative is death, separation. Lord, the alternative is just not very good. So we pray, Father, that you would guide our thinking and enable us, Lord, to set our minds on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.